All right, good morning again. I should have mentioned earlier, uh, last night we had our first uh, Saturday night evening service, uh, mask only uh, deal last night. Uh, it went well, um, had a good showing. Um, and so if you could continue to pray for that as well, as well as uh, for me to adjust to uh, a new weekend uh, schedule along with everything else that is going on. And I do want to show, uh, make some book recommendations that we have added to our library. Um, this first one, I sent out an email on it uh, a couple weeks ago called Holy Sexuality in the Gospel uh, by Christopher Yuhan, who uh, before he came to Christ, he himself was gay and then he came to uh, know Christ. And that whole story is an incredible story, uh, which we have the book um, that tells that story. His mom also gives her perspective because she was going to go commit suicide um, and then on her way to say goodbye to her son, um, who was at dental school, um, she, um, she came to know Christ. Um, and so she didn't commit suicide. And she spent eight years praying for her son, who ended up in prison, to come to know Christ. And he eventually did while he was in prison. Um, and it's a really cool story. Um, so we have that book as well, but it's checked out. That's why I can't show it to you. But it's also by Christopher uh, Yuan. Um, and also, um, in that email, I sent out the... He spoke at the district conference this fall. Um, and his parents were there as well, and the testimony uh, just was really, really powerful, really um, incredible. So this book, it, it's not just um, like, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? It does that, but it also focuses on how you can engage people on the issue, especially uh, the, the gay community, on how to engage them, how to meet with them, how to love them in light of the gospel. Um, and it does a very good job. It's, it's definitely not... It's not a, you know, a liberal, progressive, unholy view of the way to do it. It's definitely grounded in Scripture. Uh, so I would recommend that. Again, that's in the library. The second one is Urban Legends of Church History, uh, 40 Common Misconceptions by Michael Spiegel and John Adair. Uh, they deal with the common myths or common uh, thoughts of church history, uh, 40 of them. These are short chapters. Example, the first one is, uh, deals with like the earliest Christians worship on Saturday. And they'll talk about why people believe that, where does that come from, and what the reality, what the truth actually is. Uh, it will also deal with, uh, for example, um, chapter 32 deals with the United States was originally a Christian nation. And so I know that's a common misconception, especially perhaps nowadays, and they deal with that um, as well. Um, and they also deal with the other one, chapter 34, uh, none of the American founding fathers were Orthodox Christians. So they deal with the, the legend that goes the other side of the spectrum, is that well, none of the founding fathers were believers. They, they deal with the reality there as well. Uh, so that will be in the library uh, if you're interested to check out, or if you just want to come in church one day and just read one chapter, you're more than welcome uh, to do that as well. All right, so before we begin with the message, let's go to um, our Father in Heaven, and prayer. Father, thank you for allowing us to open up your word this morning uh, by your grace. We ask that your spirit would lead us uh, to your message, that your spirit would convict us, that your spirit would open up our ears um, and allow us to hear what we need to hear, and that we would all respond appropriately, that we would humble ourselves before your word. Help us uh, not to be arrogant before you, but help us to be submissive to your teaching. Father, we ask this not for our glory, but for your glory. And we ask this, Father, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. 
So go ahead and open up to 2 Samuel chapter 1. If you need a Bible, we have Bibles uh, stacked in the back that you can grab, and you're more than welcome to keep that Bible. Uh, The passage will be um, on the screen um, and wall behind me as we go through it. Uh, The last time, it's been a while since we've preached on Samuel. We just finished up 1 Samuel um, about a month ago, a little over a month ago, and then we took a few uh, weeks off, um, and now we're back into it. And the last time we talked about 1 Samuel, we ended in chapter 31 uh, with the death of King Saul and his son, uh, Jonathan. Uh, So now we continue on by beginning 2 Samuel, and we're going to see the response that David has upon hearing the news of Saul being slain, as well as his beloved friend, Jonathan. We're going to see in in David the actions of a man who chases after the heart of God. We're going to see in his character, in this type of man, the righteousness, the justice of God, followed by David's lament for this event. And in that lament, we're going to see David's heart really exposed for us to see. And we're going to learn that it's a heart like that of Christ. So let's start with the first part of chapter 1 in 2 Samuel with verses 1 through 16. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be a Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me, he called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes, and he tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening, for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So back in 1 Samuel 30, uh, if you recall, David defeated the Amalekites himself with his his men. And he did so really in a fashion of a slaughter. It was a massacre. And they did that because, remember, David and his men, they went to Gath to join the Philistines to go into battle against the Israelites and King Saul. But the uh, the Philistine commanders were like, no, we don't want you to come with us lest you turn against us in the midst of the battle. So they sent them back to Ziglag. And when they returned back to Ziglag, they found the village uh, burning. And David's family and all of his, uh, his, the men with him, all their families, all their kids, wives, daughters, uh, had been taken 
by the Amalekites. And so they pursued uh, the Amalekites and they end up slaughtering them. And while David is slaughtering the Amalekites, that day is most likely the same day that Saul himself was slain by this Amalekite. So when the Amalekite tells David of the news of the death of Saul and his beloved friend Jonathan, David asks for proof. He asks for credibility, common sense question. And the young man gives him his account of what he witnessed on Mount Geboa, and he produces the crown of Saul and his armlets. Now, this man's account, though, if you recall, it's different than what, was, what we read in 1 Samuel 31. 1 Samuel 31, uh, Saul's sons are slain. Then Saul, he's already wounded, asks his, his, his armor bearer to slay him. He refuses to, so Saul himself falls down upon his own sword. Um, and his body lays there for a few days, and men from Jabesh Gilead, well, after the Philistines return, hanging up the body of Saul, men from Jabesh Gilead go and rescue the body, the corpses of Saul and his sons. That's not the account that we get here from the Amalekite. The Amalekite here says, well, I saw Saul there, and he was mortally wounded, and he asked me to run him through, so I did. So what's going on here? Well, it could be that 1 Samuel 31 just doesn't tell the full account. I mean, maybe the Amalekite came after Saul fell on the sword, and he was still breathing. He was still living. Or perhaps the man came across the corpse of Saul after the Philistines moved on pursuing the Israelites. Saul's already dead. The man's looking to uh, pick up the scraps of the battle, kind of pick up the spoils while there's opportunity, like a good scavenger, finds the king there, thinking this is an opportunity to be rewarded by the man whom everyone is expecting to rule Israel after Saul's death. And so maybe he takes the crown and the armor and makes up this story, hoping for some kind of reward from David. Either way, though, you know, we can't really be sure, but David, what matters is, is that David, when he hears this, these words come from the Amalekite, he takes them to be true. He takes the confession uh, to be true. And so David and his men, upon hearing the news, they tore their clothes, they weep, and they fast. And not only for Saul and Jonathan, but for all of Israel. This moment, which allows David to officially step into his role as king, is a moment of tragedy. It is a moment of mourning, probably not the way that David was hoping uh, to succeed to the throne that Saul once sat on. So after processing the news, or perhaps in the midst of their weeping and mourning and fasting, David asks the man, where do you come from? And the man mentions he is an Amalekite, which at first thought, for us, reading this, we might think, well, he's in trouble. I mean, the Amalekites have, remember 1 Samuel 15, Saul was commanded, hey, wipe out the Amalekites, and he doesn't. And because he doesn't, he loses his kingdom. He loses his right to the throne. Uh, And then David, he just got done slaughtering a bunch of Amalekites, right? And he was blessed in doing so. So here's an Amalekite. When David's upset, you would think, just by reading it, because he's an Amalekite, this isn't going to end well. But it's not the fact that he's an Amalekite that it goes wrong for him, right? What causes him trouble is the fact that he is a son of a sojourner or a resident foreigner, or more literally in the Hebrew. So his status is higher than that of a straight foreigner, right? He's not just a foreigner in the land of Israel, but he's a resident foreigner, meaning he's lived there long enough to kind of be seen, seen as one of their own. 
He's lived there long enough, and he probably engages in the practices, the customs of the Israelite nation. So he should know the ways of the nation of Israel. He should know about the Lord's anointed and the significance of touching the Lord's anointed. Because he's not just simply a foreigner. He's a resident foreigner. So it's on, the, it's on this basis, these grounds, not simply that he's an Amalekite, but the fact that he should have known better, that gets him in trouble. That's why David asks him, how were you not afraid to strike down the Lord's anointed? Right? It's a rhetorical question. Like, how dare you? Why would you even think you could do this? You should know better. And the man should have known better. I mean, us, having read First Samuel, we've seen David on multiple occasions refrain from touching the Lord's anointed. God's word has made it clear up to this point. You don't touch the Lord's anointed. You don't touch the king of Israel. So therein lies the trouble for the man. And by his own words, his own story, his confession, he has brought guilt upon himself. And as such, David has the young man executed. So David's quick and decisive action does two things. First and simply, it further removes David from any complicity one might think that he has in the death of Saul. Right? And not only was he, does he have a good alibi of being away, uh, slaughtering the Amalekites on the day that Saul was slain, and he wasn't in the midst of the battle, but in case there's any other paranoia, conspiracy, or any kind of thought that David might have uh, wished this upon Saul or planned this for Saul, uh, David's action here further separates him from that idea. But second and more significantly, it shows the righteousness the justice. When we speak of, the, of righteousness, we also speak of justice. And so this shows the righteousness, the justice of David's character and how he intends to rule Israel. His first action upon finding out that Saul is dead, the throne is his, is one of righteousness. It is one of justice. Later in 2 Samuel 8.15, the author highlights this characteristic of David in his reign. He writes, so David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Throughout the book of Kings, we see the other kings being compared to David in regards to how righteous or unrighteous they ruled. Psalm 101, a psalm by David, perhaps does the best job of capturing David's zeal for reigning righteously. David writes, I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Now, of course, for David, if you know anything about David's life, you know that these words are aspirational right? These are reflecting ultimately his desires, his motives, his affections, what he wants to do. It's, it's a practice that he's unable to actually live out. And it's something that his kingdom clearly could not do as well. But these words do reflect truthfully 
the way of which the son of David, Jesus the Christ, the way that he rules. And it does effectively describe the nature of God's kingdom and those who will dwell in the kingdom of God. So the question for us is this. David, being a man after God's heart, being a man who's an example for us, and yet also points us to the coming Messiah, we who are on the other side of that coming of the Messiah, we who have been created anew, given new hearts with the Spirit dwelling within us, do we act righteously as David acts righteously, even if we do it imperfectly? Do we exhibit the same kind of zeal that David does for the decrees of God, for the holiness of God? We can expect unbelievers to act a certain way. We can expect unbelievers to be irreverent and offensive, just like David could expect a foreigner to act in certain ways, one who would be unfamiliar with the ways of Israel, one who would not know about the Lord's anointed, who would not know about the prohibition of touching the Lord's anointed. However, unlike a resident foreigner, like the young man who should have known better, believers do know better. Ignorance is never an excuse in Scripture that is approved by God. We can never just say, well, I just didn't know. Well, you should have known. The young man should have known. Whether he knew or not, he should have known being a resident foreigner. We should know how to act, how to live, because especially here in America, you have the Word of God. It'd be one thing if you didn't have the Word of God, but you have the church, you have the Word of God, and a plethora of resources to help you understand that Word. So those who do claim to know Christ, those who are within our churches, those who claim to follow him, what behavior do we tolerate? What behavior do we allow to exist within our churches, within our lives? Do we sacrifice reverence for God for unity? Maybe David's action of slaying a young man might not have been popular, but that wasn't what was at stake. Righteousness was. Do we sacrifice zeal for his holiness for comfort? Do we lay our zeal for the holiness of God aside so that we can be comfortable, that we can maintain peaceful relationships with those whom our zeal might disturb or make uncomfortable or cause them to hate us? Or what about the sins that we tolerate? The sins that we tolerate in our own lives. What sin is out there that we allow to live in our lives because we just don't have the zeal for it? We don't have the gall to deal with it. What about the sins that exist in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ? What sins in their lives do we tolerate? Now, we have to be careful. This is not a call to cut down your brother or sister in Christ. right? This is not a, a call to um, go at them and demand that they change, and, and to cut them down. It's, but it is a call to have the goal to do what is right. It's a call to, to reprove your brother or sister in Christ, to rebuke them, but to do so in a loving way, yet not hesitating to do what is necessary to lead them to correction. We must be willing to do what is necessary. We must be willing to act righteously and decisively as David does here with a young man with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul 
encourages us to do so in 1 Corinthians 5.5. In the context of a man who needs church discipline, he says, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Do we have what it takes to do this? Are we willing to live righteously before God and, and, and within the context of community to do this to our brothers and sisters in Christ who are living in willful sin? The people, the person who's chasing after the will of God, who's chasing after the heart of God as David is, will have the desire to correct, will have the desire to rebuke what is contrary to the will of God among God's people. If you're chasing after the heart of God, you will have a desire for justice. You will have a desire for righteousness, for people to be walking in holiness, for people to be sanctified. You will not tolerate unrepentant sin within the body of Christ. But at the same time, you will recognize that until Christ returns, we will always have imperfect, fallible people among us. And because of that, they need mercy as much as they need discipline. All right, hear that again. They need mercy as much as they need discipline. So now let's move on to the second half of the chapter. We're going to read the lament that David has composed in response to this news. And in doing so, we're going to see how we've just read about the the righteousness, the character of David, his desire for justice. But now we're also going to see his heart for his enemy. And this should help balance, round out um, our message today. So verses 17 through 27. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar, or in some translations, uh, the book of the bow. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Eshkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed of oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned back, turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet who put ornaments of gold on your apparel, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of woman. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. This is a beautiful lament, incredibly poetic. It's full of parallelism. It's It mimics the style of most of David's uh, psalms. Imagine these words being said about you at your funeral, right? This would be a beautiful uh, eulogy, and this is what David has composed. And these words that David expressed here, they're not surprising when we consider his relationship with Jonathan, the person that Jonathan was. But the way that David speaks of Saul here, we, we have to ask ourselves, why? I mean, clearly David recognizes the national disgrace this event um, is to Israel, hence the command to be quiet about it to the Philistines. 
Don't go talk about it in Gath. Don't go whisper it in Ashkelon. Don't let the daughters of the Philistines, the daughters of the uncircumcised, hear this, lest they rejoice. Let's not spread the news about this. I mean, anytime the king dies, it's a sad day for the nation, regardless of how you feel about the king. But these words about Saul specifically, such as beloved and lovely, or daughters of Israel weep over Saul, not just like some generic term like weep over the king, but weep over Saul. How can David honestly say these things about Saul? Consider what Saul has done, what we have read about in 1 Samuel. Saul is a man who lost his anointing, his kingship, for his disobedience and failing to slaughter the Amalekites and kill their king in 1 Samuel 15. Yet he was a man who was willing to slaughter the priests of Yahweh at Nob in 1 Samuel 22. And he kills 85 men who wore the ephod, 85 priests. And not just the 85 priests, but all the women and children that lived in the village of Nob. He is willing to slaughter them not the Amalekites, but these men of Yahweh and their families. And this includes Ahimelech, the father of Abiathar, who is now David's priest. This is a man who, though he was spared by David on multiple occasions and was chastised by the prophet and judge Samuel, he refused to repent. It's a man who threw his spear at David multiple times trying to kill him overtly, chased after David, seeking his life, and in the process, accused his son Jonathan of treason because of his friendship with David. So why would David say these things about Saul? I understand Jonathan. Jonathan was, was a good man. Right? Jonathan and David, they were like-minded fellows, and he would have been a, probably a wonderful heir to the throne. Probably would have made a great king, because he too, his heart also was after the heart of God, like David was. And they both were mighty warriors. They both brought glory to the nation of Israel, glory to Yahweh by their faith in Yahweh on the battlefield. But Saul, though, Jonathan's father, was not like his son at all. He was despicable, incompetent, selfish, more interested in building monuments to himself, like the monument he built in Carmel after the battle with the Amalekites, than he was walking in obedience to the one true king, Yahweh, who put the crown on his head to begin with. So why would David say these things about Saul? Well, this is why. Because a person who's after God's heart is a person ultimately who has the heart of Christ within them. So I want us to look at four passages in the New Testament to help expound this point further, which will show us more in detail what the heart of Christ looks like. And three of these passages come from the mouth of Jesus, one from the letter of Paul. Let's start with Matthew 5, 44. This is a Jesus speaking in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This describes David's lament to a T. David clearly saw, excuse me, David clearly loved Saul, though Saul was his enemy. And though Saul chased him and persecuted him. So now let's go to Luke 6, 27, 36 to expound on Matthew 5, 44. Uh, the context here in Luke 6, this is the Sermon on the Plain, uh, which is essentially Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Might, might have been a different sermon, might have happened at the same point. That's neither here nor there. Uh, but Jesus expounds on this and he says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, 
Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amounts. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. We should probably say that again. For he, God, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So when, when Jesus says these words, I think oftentimes when we hear this in Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain, we're like, oh, this is new teaching. It's not. The Old Testament taught this, and we see this in the life, in the actions of David. This is exactly what David is doing. He's blessing and loving his enemies, just as Jesus is saying he needs to and how we need to. So the words of Jesus, they're rooted in Scripture. They're rooted in what has always been taught from the beginning. He's just illuminating. He's just expounding on it. He's just making it more clearer for us to see. Some of us, we really need to ponder these words and be mindful, especially during this season, how we respond to those with different political views than us, or different views on the pandemic, or different views on anything, but especially when it comes to politics, and especially when it comes to uh, the response to the pandemic. We, we have to understand we are not called to live in echo chambers. You cannot love those who hate you by cutting yourself off from them. If you always surround yourself with people who always agree with what you say, who always believe what you believe, and you never engage with those of different opinions, you're doing exactly what the world would do. You're doing exactly what the world would think those who are not different from the world would do. But if you want the church to stick out, if you want the church to be the light, to be the salt, we have to be willing to love the opposition, to love those who have different views from us. You can't do that if you're not engaging with them. Now, there is wisdom to no longer associate with others. Right? There is wisdom in that. We're not supposed to do this uh, foolishly. Right? Jesus tells us we've got to be careful to whom we cast the pearls of the kingdom to. We need to be wise in this. For example, if they are a threat to you, or if they cause temptations um, in your life to sin, probably abstain from them. It's like, have nothing to do with them. Um, if you've made good, honest attempts to share the gospel, to engage, to love with them, and pray for them, and they continue to reject you, well, don't waste your time on them. All right? Their, their, their salvation isn't dependent on you. Move on. But we don't seek to reject a whole group of people, nor do we want to treat people with a broad brush. We don't want to assume, for example, that all Biden supporters are, are evil and unworthy of love. Nor must we think that those who voted for Trump are automatically racist and they're deserving of being blacklisted. So we need to ask ourselves, how are we blessing the opposition? How are we loving 
those whom we disagree with and those whom disagree with us? Or are we always running away, finding the next echo chamber where we feel safe and comfortable and loved by those who are just like us? We must be willing to take the gospel to those who disagree. And yeah, it's, it's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. People aren't going to like you. You're not, it's going to stress you out. All right? It, it's going to be hard. This is why we walk together. This is why we gather to spur one another to good deeds and to, to love others. This is why we need one another. Let us be mindful of what we spread on social media, but not just social media, what we spread in person, phone calls and conversations. Let us be sure that whatever we're sharing, whatever opinions we share, and yes, please share your opinions. Freedom of thought is a blessing to society. We need to have dialogue. We need to be able to express opinions. But let's make sure it's not gossip. Let's make sure it's not slander. Let's make sure as much as we can, as much as we are able, sometimes we just don't know. But let's do due diligence to not spread hate and not to be a fool of gossip. Remember, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, right? He came to save it. And that's exactly why we're still here. When Jesus tells us to make disciples of all nations, that's exactly the purpose of saving the world. You don't make disciples by condemning the world. You make disciples by saving, by spreading the saving message of the gospel. We should be seeking to save rather than to condemn. Now, let me be clear. Sometimes, when we save people, we have to highlight why they need to be saved, right? We need to call out sin for what it is. We just don't hide it, right? We don't, when we say condemn, we're not saying you don't point out the sin. You most definitely point out the sin. You warn them of the condemnation that's coming so that they can be saved. We must do that. But we just don't simply condemn them with anger and tell them how worthless and how uh, sinful they are without trying to love them and bring them to the gospel. People ought to know you primarily by your worldview rather than your political view, right? You can have a political view, all right? Absolutely. We all should have, as Americans, to be a good citizen, we should have a political view. But your political view should be driven by your worldview, not the other way around. Your worldview how you view the world should not be driven by the fact that you're, you're a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian or an Independent or Green Party, whatever it is. Your worldview should drive your political view. Your political view should be rooted in the fact that you're a Christian, that you know Scripture. You know that all people bear the image of God regardless of skin color, socioeconomic uh, situation, whatever it is. We're all we're all image bearers of, of God. You understand that Jesus Christ is keen. He has expectations. He has a justice. He has a moral law that he calls us to strive to be obedient to. You should be known more for that worldview than your political view. If people just simply know you as a Trump supporter, not as a Christian, consider how you're talking. Consider what you're promoting. Consider how you're engaging people in relationships. But if they know, hey, yeah, you're a Trump supporter, but I know what, what's more important to you is Christ and the gospel. And that regardless of what happens to Trump, your joy is going to stay the same. You're going to be content regardless of the result of the election. You're going to be a good citizen because you're first a citizen of the kingdom before you are a citizen of America. Or if you're a Biden supporter, the same thing, whatever. People should know that you're a Christian first and foremost before your political affiliation or any type of affiliation. We can even take this into sports. 
right? Let's, if we, let's remove politics and let's bring sports. Before you're a Packer fan, you're a Christian, which means you can love Bear fans. I know that's hard. I'm a Red Sox fan, and, and loving Yankee fans is a thing that the Lord has worked in my heart, um, and I feel much, after this season, it's much easier to do, um, to, to love Yankee fans, because the Red Sox season is just a waste, but I'm digressing. So anyway, we have to understand that our worldview needs to be the view Christ has of this world, not the view that man has of this world. So we have to be discerning of the ideologies that exist out there, the worldviews, the popular worldviews, the popular hashtags, the popular movements that are in our society. We must not just jump on the train and be like, well, this, is, this makes everyone feel good, so I'm going to embrace. No, we, one worldview we embrace, the word of God. And in order to discern what is right and what is just and what we should embrace, we must know the word of God. We must be diligent in our study. Let's go on and let's look at Luke 23, 34. This is near the end of Luke. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now the context of this verse, what is it? What's well, near the end of Luke, not many more chapters left after chapter 23 in Luke. Jesus, he's on the cross. He's being crucified here. He's been flogged by these people. He's had his flesh scourged for our sins, not his sins, our sins, and for the sins of those who are inflicting harm on them. But yet he continues to love those who are crucifying him. He asks the Father to forgive them. If we are to have the heart of Christ, we must also love those who insult us. Do you do that? When that Biden supporter or that Trump supporter says something to you that makes you angry, do you pray that you can forgive them? Do you pray for God to bless them? Are you praying for Biden and Harris that they would be blessed if they, as it seems to be, if they continue to take the office? Are you praying for their well-being? Are you forgiving Democrats, or whoever your opposition is, are you forgiving them? We must love those who resist us, who resist the word of God, who refuse his teaching, his way. We must love those who seek to exploit our character, our integrity, who know that we hold a Christian worldview, thus they know how we live, and they use that to their advantage, and they'll live dishonestly, recognizing that we'll live honestly, and we might lose our job to them. Do we forgive them? We need to love those in the midst of pain, in the midst of being hurt by them. Maybe, God forbid, they take your child from you in an accident, in murder, whatever it may be. Can you forgive them? Because Christ has forgiven those who put him on the cross. When Jesus is on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, he's not only speaking of those right there. Remember, Jesus is, is he's ultimately on the cross on his own volition. And he's there on his own volition because of our sins. Those of us in this room. If he is able to forgive us, the son of God, the son of David, the man who, the only man all, in all of eternity who knew no sin, who was completely undeserving of any death, any type of suffering, If he can love in this manner, how much more so should we who are selfish, arrogant, and deprived, how much more so should we love those who hate us? And if you don't think you're selfish, arrogant, depraved, depraved, excuse me, you're at the very least arrogant. 
And if you're still doubtful, let's go to the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 5, 8. But God. You know, those two words there, I thought about this last night. But God are perhaps two of the most fantastic words in all of Scripture. We could draw so much doctrine, so much meaning from those two words. Just consider Ephesians 2, 4. You can check that out later when Paul says, but God, in another context. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't die for us on the cross after we or the nation of Israel achieved some level of morality. It wasn't like they finally tallied up enough points, enough tickets, to earn the privilege of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, taking on flesh and dying on the cross for all of mankind. Or it wasn't that they had some sort of friendship or some sort of peace with God. No. While we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, still hostile in mind towards the most holy God, while we were still spewing insults at him, and while we, being fully deserving of eternal damnation, we have no reason to be redeemed or saved. There's nothing in the character of God, in the nature of God, that says, hey, you must redeem these people who bear your image. There's nothing in him beyond his goodness, beyond his grace, that says you must redeem him. And his grace isn't like, well, you must redeem him because you're gracious. No. He, he's just a good God. This is, this, is, this is the mystery. This is why when we think of the gospel, we should be like, whoa! Like our minds should just explode at the generosity of God's grace because we don't deserve it. Not one bit do we deserve any mercy from God. All we deserve is damnation. If we know Christ, it's purely by his mercy, by his grace. This is why Christ died. The Son of God suffered the full wrath of his Father, which was reserved for us, simply because God is good. It's not because you bring anything to the table, because you don't. How can you bring to the table to an almighty, infinite, everlasting God who created all things out of nothing? You can bring nothing to him. He's perfectly holy. You have nothing to offer God. Any worship you bring to him is because the Holy Spirit, God himself, dwells within you. God God exists for his own glory. He redeems for his own glory. We are benefactors of that. And that's a blessing. It's purely by God's perfect mercy. But we have to understand this. Or because of this, the heart of God is one worth chasing. It's one worth dying for. Because he is perfectly merciful while at the same time, though God is perfectly merciful, he is perfectly just. He is perfectly righteous. And we see this of David. David reflects this, though he does so imperfectly. A man who desires the righteousness of God to be practiced in his kingdom, while at the same time exhibiting mercy, love, and compassion for his enemies. It wasn't just for Saul that he does this. Remember when him and his, his men are pursuing the Amalekites, they come across the Egyptian servant of the Amalekites who had been left there for three days. This man was involved in the raiding of his village and the kidnapping of his family. But what does he do to this man? He extends compassion, grace, and mercy. So it wasn't just Saul that he does this to. He does it for his actual enemies as well. And this is the great paradox of Scripture. Time after time, God speaks of how he hates the evildoer. Just read Psalm 5. He hates the evildoer. He, hate, he, he speaks about how the one who does what is unrighteous, 
He cuts off, he casts off from his covenant community. He will not dwell with God ever and ever. Yet at the same time, when God speaks of how he loves those who wander off, he will speak of how he loves those who wander off, and those that he hates, he desires that they would turn, that they would reject their ways and turn to him. He's saying, with, in one way, he's saying, I hate sinners. I hate those who commit sin. I hate lovers of iniquity. But at the same time, he's saying, but look, if you reject those ways, I will welcome you in. If you follow my ways, I will welcome you into my house, and you will dwell with me forever. The very people he rejects, the very people he hates, he extends his love, his mercy, his grace towards. Romans 2.4, Paul says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Point here is, don't think that because God hasn't disciplined you, that his anger hasn't come against you because of your sin, that he approves of your sin. God leads us to repentance because he is kind, because he loves us. That's how he leads us to repentance. How are we saved? By the kindness of God. Because we look to it on the cross, the life of Christ, the work of Christ, the blood shed by Christ, the kindness of God in the flesh. That's, we see that like, whoa, I'm going to turn away from my ways. But yet, we, again, we must not take this for granted. This is a point that Peter himself also reiterates in 2 Peter 3.9. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Judgment's coming. That's what Peter is saying here. Judgment's coming, and God is not slow in fulfilling out his perfect justice, but in his mercy, by his grace, through the work of his Son, he desires that all should repent. So he is being patient. As much, as, as much patient as his glory, his holiness will allow him to. Therefore, we have to understand that this is God's desire. We must understand that perfect love involves perfect justice. Justice unpaid is not perfect justice. We who desire to love perfectly, we will desire that justice is delivered perfectly. So we won't turn a blind eye to sin within, one, within sin in our own lives, but also sin within the body of Christ. Therefore, let us live, let us act righteously, and in doing so, let us love and bless our enemies. Let us seek justice, and as we seek justice, let us find mercy. And then let us walk in obedience to God. This is something that David models for us, though, again, not always perfectly. He has his stumbles, and we're going to read about them as we go through Second Samuel. But the son of David, who is the Christ, he does do this perfectly. And only he has been able to live in this manner. He's not only our great example, but he is our perfect enabler in all of this. And if you struggle with this, which if you don't struggle with this, uh, I don't think you understand. Because we all, it's hard to love our enemies. It is hard sometimes to expect justice to be delivered upon those whom we love. I have two brothers who aren't believers. They continue in their path. They're going to be judged eternally. 
And I can't just sit here as a, as a faithful person and be like, I don't want that. That's selfish of me. I want justice. I want perfect justice, whatever that is. I, I might not be able to comprehend what perfect justice is while I'm living in this world, but I have an idea from what's written in Scripture. And I, so I might struggle with loving my enemies. We need to pray for that. We need to pray over and over again. You can never, ever pray enough. If you think you're praying enough, you're not. You're wrong. Get more into Scripture. We need to pray. Don't ever think that you've prayed enough. When you go to God and you pray, it is such a blessing. Even if you don't know what to say. You make it a habit of your life to pray. If you struggle with your anger, if you struggle with the words that come out of your mouth, if you're praying regularly, that's going to help. Because the more you pray, the more you're thinking about Him. And, and, And when you think of Him, you realize how small you are. And when you think of him, you go to his word more. It's this cycle. And it's, it will transform how you talk, how you love on others. If you struggle with this, read God's word on the matter. Read the parables that deal with forgiveness. Consider the depth of your sin, the gravity of sin. The debt that Jesus paid. And, and be mindful of that. Our debt, when our sins were forgiven... It wasn't like God took the cost of it and just did away with it. No, the cost was paid, meaning someone had to bear the burden of the debt you owed. And Christ is the one who bared that burden. So when we forgive others, it's not an easy thing. Because when you forgive others, that offense, that cost that they're supposed to pay, you're taking it upon yourself. You're suffering that cost. You're suffering that burden. And that's not an easy thing to do. But we do so because we consider the debt that Christ paid for us. And the debt that he paid off for us, enormous. We can't comprehend this debt with our minds, with our finite minds. So when somebody offends us, it's a small thing in comparison to what God has done. So we're able to do so. But it doesn't mean that there's not pain involved. The cost still has to be carried. It still has to be dealt with. And when we forgive others, that's exactly what we do. Let us meditate on the truths of Scripture. We have to. Jesus, the living word, he has the living water. And if you struggle with this, you're thirsty for it. We need to go to the truths of Scripture so we're not thirsty again. And we need to go back to it over and over again so that our cups will continue to overflow because this world if we're not careful, it will dry us out. If we abstain from the body, we will dry out. We, were, we will wither. We need to meditate. We need to memorize Scripture. We need to pray over Scripture. We need to, when we have fellowship with one another, we need to discuss Scripture. We need to take this beautiful cake of good news, cut it up in many ways, and eat it, and enjoy it, and share it, and then do it again as often and as much as we possibly can. And when we do that, we consider the truth of the gospel, especially the truth of who we are now compared to who we were. Always consider the work of Christ in your life. We see this in the Old Testament constantly through the Psalms, through the prophets. God says, look what I did. I delivered you 
from slavery in Egypt. I parted the Red Sea. I stopped up the waters of the Jordan. I caused water from the rock. I had bread from heaven come down to feed you. And now we, in the new covenant, we can look back and we can say, we know the living bread. We know the living water. Jesus Christ, we know what he has done for us. Consider the work that Christ has done for you. And in doing so, you're reminded of your identity in Christ. You're reminded of your position before the Father. This is a truth that we are reminded of when we partake in communion. It's why we do it every week. And now, I realized this last night, I got to partake of it last night. I get to partake of it again this morning. I was, I was really excited. When I realized that, I was really excited about that. Because communion, it's a reminder. It's a blessing. It's a gift to us. It's not a check off your list thing that we do, right? We don't do this simply because, well, if I do this, I'm going to, you do this, you partake in communion, it's not going to earn favor before God, right? God gave us communion for your blessing, for my blessing. Because when we eat of the bread, when we drink of the juice, we taste the gospel. We taste the promises of the new covenant. We taste of the work of Christ, his blood and his body, the blood that was shed for our forgiveness and his body that was broken as well. And all of this because we know that Christ is going to return in the flesh, so we want to live holy lives. So after we partake of communion here, when you go out this week and you struggle to forgive somebody, you struggle to love the opposition, I pray that that cracker is still in your mouth. Maybe it's in the back of your throat causing you to cough. Or maybe the sweetness of the juice is there and you're like, "Mm, I belong to God. I'm in Christ. He's my worldview. I'm not of this world. I'm a blessing to this world. America comes and goes. Society changes. People rise to power. They fall from power. Religious liberty, that also comes and goes. Whether that stays or goes, I'm happy as can be. All is well with my soul because I am in Christ and I have eternal life. Whether this pandemic goes away or whether it gets worse, I have eternal life. Death is but a passageway into paradise with Christ. So at this time, we're going to enter into a communion. If you're new here visiting, we have an open table, uh, and that just simply means um, you do not have to be a member of our church to partake of communion, nor do you uh, need to be baptized. We don't make that requirement. Uh, Though if you're not baptized, I would ask why. Let's, let's have that conversation. Let's get you to be walking in obedience to uh, the scriptures. But we don't, keep, we don't use that to keep you from the table. Um, I will pray, bless the elements. Um, I don't know if we have anyone on Zoom this morning. Okay, so we'll have somebody on Zoom. We do Zoom. If you're wondering why we do Zoom, communion is meant to be a corporate activity, like baptism, right? It's a corporate activity. We get to witness who our brothers and sisters in Christ are. We get to say, hey, I'm part of the new covenant. I want to be held accountable to the new covenant. I want to be held accountable to the words of Christ. Walk with me. Pray with me. So this allows people who are unable to join us in person, they can partake of communion at home. We see them. They see us on our YouTube live stream. So I'm going to pray for the elements. Um, After I uh, pray for the elements, um, take a moment uh, to pray yourselves. In that moment, ask the Father to send the Spirit to guide you, convict you, confess your sins. If you're struggling with forgiving somebody who has offended you, hurt you, abstain from the table, especially after this message. You know better now. 
All right, so don't come up here bringing judgment upon yourself. Deal with that first. We do this weekly. We will have next week, Lord willing, if the Lord doesn't call you home or calls us all home or returns, we'll do this uh, next week. So abstain. Don't bring judgment upon yourself. And, and let's talk about that. Let's walk together in this. There is no shame in bringing forth your struggles. There is shame, though, if you hide it, if you think you're better than that. You're not. We're all sinners here. And, we, and, and I pray that we're all repentant sinners. Right? We all desire repentance. We all desire growth. And that requires you and I to talk with one another, love one another, pray with one another. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for this morning. I thank you that we can gather as a body, Father, by your grace, by the work of your Son. We don't deserve this, Father, but you've made a way and you've given us your Spirit. And because your Spirit dwells within us, you love us. You bless us, and we're, and we're called to live a certain way, Father, and you've made a way for us to live that way. And as we come to the table this morning, forgive us for our sins, Father. Bring them to our awareness. Help us to acknowledge our depravity, our faults, where we have slipped, where we have stumbled, the sins that we're tolerating in our lives and in our families. Help us to correct the sins in our own lives. Help us to correct the sins I'm in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us to be open to correction, Father. Perhaps that's the hardest thing for us today. Help us to be humble enough to when a brother and sister in Christ, who in love comes to us, to correct us, Father, that we can hear it, submit ourselves to it, and give all of us a tenderness in our hearts and our souls for each other. No one here is higher than the other. No one here is greater we're all brothers and sisters. We're all one in Christ. We each have our own roles and our own parts in the body, Father, but we're all one in your Son. Help us to maintain that perspective. Help us to recognize that the world, those who aren't part of your body, they don't know. They're blind. They walk in darkness. They can't see. Help us to understand that they are dead bodies who don't know how to live because, well, they're dead. Help us trust in the power of the Spirit to make them alive again and help us to be vessels of your glory of your truth of the gospel. Help us to love those whom we find difficult to love. Rid the anger that's in our souls from us, Father. If we are angry, let it be a righteous anger that causes us not to sin. Let us be mindful of our tongue. Let us deal generously and graciously towards those who don't deserve it as you have done so with us. May we be reminded of this truth, of your gospel, the life of your son, Jesus Christ, the work that he did on the cross. Be reminded of the, the resurrection and the resurrection that is to come as we partake of the cracker and the juice this morning. That reminds us of this truth, Father. We thank you for this opportunity of fellowship with you and your son and the spirit. We thank you for this opportunity to be encouraged to drink of your cup. Father, just, I ask that this joy would never leave our souls. There is a lot of suffering going on in this world today. People who have lost loved ones. People who have lost jobs. There's a lot of political turmoil, a lot of unsettling going on in our lives. Some feel lost, Father. Help us stay grounded to your truth. 
This world will fade away, but your word will not. We thank you for that, Father. We ask all these things, Father, for your glory, by the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, because your Son has asked for him to do so. And we ask all this also in the name of your Son, and by the blood that he shed. Amen.